You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. The Bay Area is very racially diverse. Its local halls of power, less so. I think it's one of those things where you kind of see it and you're like, huh, Mm. there's a lot of white people on that council or there's, you know, there's not that much diversity there. And then thinking about, well, has anyone checked? Like, is there actual data to support that? you know, kind of anecdotal thing that we see a lot of times. We'll talk with the people who did check and found that, yes, elected officials are disproportionately white. And we'll talk about how that could change and what happens when it does. And to go to, you know, as an adult, to go to a a city meeting where decisions are being made, seeing people who look like my grandparents and my parents being involved, and that was, was really beautiful to see. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Before we get started today, for full transparency, the Bay Area Equity Atlas and Bay Rising, two groups that I talked with for the episode, both received funding from the San Francisco Foundation, which also helps support the San Francisco Public Press, my employer. Neither I nor the public press participated in the research that we're talking about today, and we didn't pursue this story at the behest of any of these other organizations. All right, let's get started. I will fight to represent my constituents. I will fight to represent the city and county of San Francisco. I will fight to give those people who had once walked away hope so that those people will walk back in. Thank you very much. That's Harvey Milk, San Francisco's first openly gay elected official, at City Hall taking office as city supervisor. The tape is from NBC Bay Area, captured in 1978. Milk made headlines because he was open about his sexuality, but he wasn't the only first on the board. You can hear the NBC reporter alluding to that in a way that maybe didn't age too well. Milk is one of 11 supervisors. There are three women. One is black. There is an Asian. The black woman was Ella Hill Hutch, the first African-American woman and only the second black person ever to become a city supervisor. Gordon Lau was the first Chinese-American on the board and an activist for the city's Asian-American community. In all, arguably a win for diversity on the city's governing body of elected officials. Making the board more inclusive had already been a point of discussion back in 1977, and it still is, decades later. Here's another TV news report on the board, this one from KTVU. The results for even the most contested races in San Francisco have now been settled, and the Board of Supervisors now has a new look, a look which Supervisor-elect Myrna Melgar says better reflects the city's diversity. With uh, Connie Chan having been elected to District 1, for which I'm so grateful, we have now uh, doubled the number of women of color on the Board of Supervisors. And that aired in 2020. The diversity of local elected officials is a concern in the whole Bay Area. Boards and councils are slowly getting more representative. But white people, a minority in the Bay Area at about 40% of the population, are still way overrepresented. This is something that equity-focused groups started looking into to see if a casual observation was in fact supported by data. I think it's one of those things where you kind of see it and you're like, huh, Mm. There's a lot of white people on that council or there's, you know, there's not that much diversity there. And then thinking about, well, has anyone checked? Like, is there actual data to support that, you know, kind of anecdotal thing that we see a lot of times? That's Kimmy Lee, director of Bay Rising, which is a coalition of about 30 organizations around the Bay Area. And so a few years ago, we were asked to be one of the advisors for the Bay Area Equity Atlas as it was developing its database. And they were asking us as a key partner, 
what kind of information would be useful to you? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this idea of like, well, what's the diversity of electeds actually? You know, is there some data, like, can we track and just see, is it getting any better? Like you see more women who jumped into the elections over the last few years as a response to a lot of things happening federally. But it was interesting just to see, well, has it actually changed? Figuring this out required quite a bit of research because the data set had to be compiled in the first place. Here's Michelle Huang, an associate on the Bay Area Equity Atlas team at PolicyLink. So we started tracking, and we didn't find that there was any good data source on this topic mm. for the Bay Area. And so we we're like, well, let's do it ourselves. Let's collect this data. Yeah. Um, and that's why we started tracking this since 2018. So it's been about four election cycles that we've collected this data on. To do this, the researchers identified all of the electeds across more than 100 municipalities mayors, city council members, boards of supervisors for counties, and even district attorneys. If there were news reports that specified the person's racial or ethnic identity, they used that, or sometimes would make a guess based on a person's photo. Then they'd double-check by emailing each individual to confirm or correct. And what they found is that more people of color are running for and winning local offices. But people of color, who make up about 60% of the Bay Area, are still underrepresented among officials. Since 2018, the portion of top elected officials in the Bay Area who are people of color has gone from 26% to about 34%. I asked Michelle and Kimmy, can you talk a bit about why white people are so overrepresented? I think it has to do with just our elections and our campaigns and and what you need to run for office. When you start getting into the details, there's a lot of structural barriers for people. And so for women, people who are mothers or taking care of children or, you know, don't have the time to volunteer, all these things come into play. Because when you run for office, some offices, it's a volunteer position or you get a stipend. You might get $100 or $200 a month to do the job, but then it could take hours and hours hours of your time. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the resources to kind of just give that time back to your community, you're not going to be able to do that. It's not a feasible option. So that's one bit of it. It's just like that it's not always a paid position. The other side, though, is even getting into elections. There's a lot of money that has come into our local politics. Mm -hmm. And I think this is part of why we see this huge gap that If you're not independently wealthy, it's not something on the top of your list to run for office because you got to pay for all the campaign stuff. You know, you have to like take time off of work or just really do a lot of time that you are talking to people and talking to voters, which is a very important piece of it, but you're not paid for that. And so if you're not independently wealthy or have some resources behind you, most people can't just do that. And it could be a year of that, a year of campaigning, two years of campaigning. And then on the other side of it, you might be up against opponents that are getting millions of dollars behind them. And this is what we see in the Bay Area, that a ton of money has been coming in for our local elections. And that's kind of like one of the hugest problems that we see that blocks people from running for office. So working class folks, people with families, all those things make it really difficult for folks to run for office. What happens there at the local level in elected bodies when you have increased diversity or increased representation of the people who are being, you know, whose lives are being affected by this decisions being made here? Yeah, I think you see a difference in what is talked about in these meetings, Mm -hmm. right? Like what proposals are being made, 
how responses are to crises or to emergencies, like there's definitely a difference. We started to talk about what was happening in San Jose and that there was a measure to actually stop this flea market that had been happening for a long, long time. And the community, it was a lifeline for many working class folks. And when the vote came down, actually, all the white people voted to dismantle this flea market. Whereas for, you know, for people of color, it, it was a huge issue. And so just that disconnect of like the impact that flea market had on the community was just apparent, right? So that's a situation where you can see the lack of diversity yeah. impacting a decision. And then on the flip side, in Oakland, we see Nikki Bass, who is definitely connected to the community. And when the Oakland was going through its budget cycle, she invested in a process to get the community involved. And she had multilingual, you know, community, in-person, socially distant, in-the-park sessions with the community to create the priorities and to actually talk about, well, what kind of things do you want to see in development, in the budget, like, you know, what's important to you? And so that is different where you have someone who, you know, she's from Oakland, she's lived here all her life, like she has deep roots here, and she knew it was important to go to her neighborhoods and actually get input in several different languages, right? Like taking the time to engage community about it and to explain, you know, a lot of people kind of just assume, oh, budget, whatever, like it gets too complicated. And most people just assume those decisions are going to be made by somebody else. So by actually creating a process for community engagement, you know, she has actually gotten the input and made sure that all the voices that are impacted get to actually be part of that process. And the fact that she's the president of the Oakland City Council, I think that does change kind of how things are done. Mm. And so that's an example of, you know, somebody who is really thinking about community first and actually getting that kind of input, going out of the way, you know, Saturday session, having, you know, all these different things so that community can participate. Mm -hmm. And just to be super clear for anybody who doesn't already know this, Nikki Bass is a person of color, yes? Yes, I mean, just a personal as I'm a, you know, first generation immigrant from Taiwan, and I've been to one of these budget sessions with Nikki Bass and seeing the translations, you know, it hit hard because, you know, growing up, exactly what you said, Kimmy, that my parents kind of just felt like everything that happens, it happens to us. Like there's, you know, we don't have control, we don't have inputs. Mm. And to go to, you know, as an adult, to go to, a, you know, a city meeting where decisions are being made and seeing people who look like my grandparents and my parents being involved. And that was, it was really beautiful to see. As a sort of counterpoint to that, there are 26 cities in the Bay Area that have all white city councils, zero people of color. And even more astounding to me, that's not necessarily just cities where, you know, white people are the majority. Dixon and Oakley are majority people of counter cities with all white councils. What is going on there, if you know? Like, what is, how did that happen and, and what has that resulted in? Well, I think this just goes back to what I was talking about. There's a lot of barriers for people of color to run for office. Mm -hmm. There's the economic situation, but also, like Michelle just mentioned, for families that immigrated more recently, so many Asian and Latino communities that immigrated, running for office or being part of government actually is not at the top of the list of jobs, right? Like right. some folks, my own family, like come from a country where there was a military dictatorship. Yeah. And so the idea of taking a job in government or making that like a priority is just not there. And so there is kind of a generation gap, I think, mm -hmm. in terms of who runs for office, who thinks of it as a job. And for people that have been here much longer, 
that's in their realm of understanding of a job, like that you might work in government or you might work at City Hall. And maybe that's another piece of data that we could research more about. But yeah, I just think for a lot of immigrants and a lot of people of color, working for the government is not high on the list. If you break this down a little bit more, you start to see that looking at this at the regional level doesn't give you the full picture. Because we're talking about local governing bodies here, so the representatives aren't equally distributed. For example, about one in four Bay Area residents is Latinx, but just 13% of electeds are. So a fifth of Latinx residents in the area actually live in a municipality that doesn't have a single Latinx elected official. Only about a tenth of Bay Area electeds are Asian American, even though a quarter of the population is. Same problem there. One stark example, San Jose has a fifth of the entire region's Asian American residents, not one Asian American city council member. The share of Black elected officials in the region is now actually slightly bigger than the share of the region's population that is Black. But the majority of Bay Area cities have no Black elected officials, and tens of thousands of Black Bay Area residents live in those cities. So what does that say about representation? It can be complicated because then you see African-Americans like Larry Elder running for office and people right. thinking, oh, he can be the black official. And, and so I think, you know, to the point of just because someone's a person of color doesn't mean they totally represent mm -hmm. all the different issues. Right. But our main point being you need that at least to like engage in the diversity and like diversify who's there. And then there, there's going to be a range of political orientation so that, you know, that's like a second layer to it. But yeah, I think this idea of if you just don't have the diversity, if you don't have people reflected in government, they're not going to have the same experiences or the background or the ability to really represent all aspects of, of our lives, right? So I think um, having folks from a diverse background, not just race and ethnicity, but economic backgrounds, renters, you know, I think that's a, another huge gap where we, we're finding that a lot of the city councils tend to be homeowners or even landlords. So when they're voting on renter protections, mm. that's not always something on the top of their list, mm -hmm. right? And so how many times do we actually have renters there? So it's connected, right? That you need a diversity of all kinds of things. And without that, then those bodies are limited. They're just not going to be able to fully understand or comprehend all the different issues. You know, I think what we see with the Black community is that, you know, there aren't enough folks in those positions. Uh, we need to do way better, but it's just not a reality. There's just still too many barriers. I kind of want to point to Kenny's point, and you know, the goal isn't to have, you know, equal proportional share, right? We've seen in the region, you know, black residents make up 6% of the total population, but the goal isn't to have exactly 6% mm -hmm. of electeds being, you know, black residents, right? Because we have to recognize that there are decades of anti-black policies that have created these deep racial disparities. You know, we see it in income and in employment, educational outcomes. So having, you know, equal representation doesn't mean these issues will just, you know, change or the be solved. The problem is solved. Yeah, right. Just having, yeah, having more electeds with these, like, with lived experience of black communities is really important. And it's not enough to just, you know, reach parity, right? There are a few ways that local governments could go about trying to improve representation on their boards and councils. How campaigns are financed is a major factor. I think the point about money is huge. Money yep. in politics, especially in the Bay Area, you just see, and in these last few elections, you could really see the shift. 
school board elections, which should be these smaller kind of neighborhood elections, parents that want to run for office, they've really been sideswiped by outside money. And we've Hmm. seen hundreds of thousands of dollars get dumped into local. So in Oakland, local school board for an area with only 30,000 school children, hundreds of thousands of dollars getting put into local school board races. And so that really puts it out of the reach. Like a local candidate, we had someone run for office, single mom, single black mom, trying to raise money. And, you know, and folks are like, oh, yeah, school board, five, ten thousand dollars she raised $50,000. And that wow. still wasn't enough because the other person got $400,000 oh from Bloomberg and people from outside the area. It's like, why are these outside people putting money into mm. this local town election, mm. right? Like, So the Bay Area just has so much outside money and tech money and new money that it makes it just so hard. And so you look even at California Propositions, millions of dollars from companies coming in to influence our elections. So just the whole thing just makes it really difficult for people to even envision themselves in that whole kind of circus. Millions of dollars. Like if you're not independently rich, how do you even compete in that? So I just want to really push the point about money and politics right now is just a huge, huge barrier for our community. Right now, we have public financing in many of our cities, which means that if someone's going to run for office, they can opt in to get funds, like matching funds from their city. So if I raise a dollar, I get an extra dollar back, depending on what city, could be up to $6 back. Now, that is helpful. But what we found, because of the flood of money I talked about earlier, is not enough. So when a candidate opts in to take public campaign finance, they also have to agree to limits on the amount of donations they can take from people. So sometimes, like in San Francisco, this binds the candidate, right? Like it kind of ties their hands behind their back because while they want to opt in to getting public finance, it caps and limits how much money they can raise from individuals as well as like overall. And so for some of them, they decide not to participate because they need to just be able to fundraise and do all kinds of things to counter this outside money. So for us, so campaign finance is the first step, but what we are now talking about is small donor public financing. So it's a system that Seattle and New York have put into place where every voter is given a democracy dollar, $25, like a coupon, right, that they could then give to a candidate. This encourages candidates to interact with more voters, right, to get them to donate their democracy dollars or their vouchers as well as gives more people an opportunity to actually give money to candidates, right? Because right now what happens, there's a disconnect. And like in Oakland, only 1% of Oakland voters give to candidates. Mm. Only 1%, Mm -hmm. very small, right? So the idea of like, if you can get people more engaged and it's like, oh, I've got this $25 voucher, who should I give it to? It's been shown to actually increase civic participation because then people feel invested. Oh, I gave my $25 to Nikki or I gave my $25 to so-and-so. And so then you will watch and see what did that person do with my money or, you know, what are they doing? And so it elevates the participation and engagement of voters. But it also, again, kind of levels a playing field where then people need to go out and engage people to collect these vouchers or these democracy dollars back. Mm. 
So we've seen in Seattle that it's been successful. They've been able to get like community folks that, you know, didn't have much money. The one example, actually, I can't remember her name, but she was the first person to win. And her name is escaping me at the moment. She only put in $325 into her campaign. Wow. $300 was the filing fee. And then she paid for like one Facebook thing for $25. And that was all <laughs> the money that she had to put in. It was just like, are you kidding me? 300 you know? Yeah. So it's just amazing that that was her experience. And she was able to run a successful campaign because she could get these democracy dollars working for her. Right. And so it just really shifts the playing field. It is also just astounding, just the scale of the amount of money that goes into local elections in the Bay Area. Because, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of money here. The cost of living is high. But just to think that this person in Seattle put in $325, you know, even in 96, when this campaign was happening for Proposition G in a district, I think people or sorry, for to run for supervisor, people were putting down an average of $300,000. to yeah. run. Well, and that that again, that like, if you look at the public records on how much they spend on campaigns, you're talking six, $700,000, like upwards of a million dollars to run. And it's like, who can afford that? Like, who even puts that in their brain of like, oh, I'm just going to spend a million dollars to run for office (laughs) that I might not get. You know, it's just it's it's a weird kind of twist on things like, you know, going back to my point about like people don't even see it in the realm of like, oh, yeah, that's a job I want. I'm going to spend a million dollars to maybe get this job that maybe or may not pay me enough to survive. Like it just all doesn't connect. There's also one structural change that, even though on its face it might not be obviously a matter of racial equity, already seems to be making a difference in representation. One of the challenges is that a lot of cities in the Bay Area are, people are voted in at large, meaning that you you have to run across the entire city in order to run for a council position. And a lot of times when you want to represent your community, that's really time intensive and it requires a lot of money to run, you know, across the entire city. But what we're seeing is that a lot of places are switching to district-based elections, meaning that they can candidates can just focus on a smaller district, particularly like maybe a district they have more community relationships in that they you know are coming from, and that's a lot easier to run because you don't have to spend as much money or time reaching out to your constituents. So I think that's there are, you know things slowly changing, but that's one of the barriers for people of color to run. This is why I was talking about the 1977 election before, how that year the city got its first African-American woman supervisor, its first Asian-American supervisor, and its first openly gay supervisor. Well, that was also the city's first district election. But before you get to thinking that San Francisco had this all figured out ahead of the curve, voters in San Francisco actually went back and forth on district versus at-large elections a bunch of times. There are some twists and turns here, and credit goes to SFGate and the urbanist think tank Spur for writing up the history of this. The first initiative to change to district elections was an effort by neighborhood associations, labor unions, and gay activists. They were saying that district elections would result in a more inclusive board. They put a measure on the ballot, it passed, and then we get the 1977 elections. But that election also brought Dan White to the Board of Supervisors. And as you might recall, a year later, Dan White shot and killed Harvey Milk and the mayor at the time, George Moscone, in City Hall. As president of the Board of Supervisors, it's my duty to make this announcement. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. 
There were other factors too, but that incident damaged the reputation of the district system. It was repealed in 1980. Fast forward seven years, and this issue is back on the ballot. It fails. Then comes 1994, and a ballot initiative creates an elections task force to look at some potential alternative ways to run elections. The task force suggests two possibilities, a preference voting system and, you guessed it, a district system. The district system wins, but it isn't implemented until the year 2000, and this time it sticks. Here's a funny thing about this, though. The last time that district elections were on the ballot, both sides, both for and against it, were arguing that their approach would make the board more inclusive and diverse. I brought this up with Michelle and Kimmy, and the proponents said it costs less to run a district elections, and the opponent said, oh, actually, no, this is a direct quote, you can spend more money in a smaller district, further disenfranchising working people and communities of color. And they also said opponents of this said district elections are divisive and regressive. What has your research shown about the cost and representativeness of district elections, now that we're looking back on this many years later? <laughs> Yeah, so what our research is finding is that there are more people of color who run for office after switching to district-based elections. Hmm. And, you know, it's only a small subset of Bay Area cities that are switching to district-based elections. I think most cities only have switched over in the past two election cycles. It's a fairly new development. Other cities like San Francisco and Oakland have been using district-based elections for a number of years. It's really fascinating. I don't, Kimmy can speak more about the cost, but, you know, what we're seeing is that more people of color are running. So like in Redwood City, for example, um, last year's election was the first time they used city council districts and at least one person of color ran for office in the four districts that were up for election. And the most exciting thing is, is the person of color won that position mm -hmm. in all four districts. And so when you compare that to the previous election cycle when all of the candidates were white, you know, that is a dramatic difference. It really shows that people are, especially people who have been historically excluded from running, are finding it more accessible to run for office. Do you have any sense of why? I mean, I would credit it to the district election, what Michelle was mentioning around. It's a smaller area for you to have to door knock or engage with. You know, you're talking about mm -hmm. 10,000 to 15,000 people versus 200,000 or 400,000. Mm. I mean, that is a huge gap. And so I don't have data points for what you're comparing to from the 70s, 80s. But I just know from working on campaigns, you know, if you need to outreach to 15,000 people, that's still a lot of people. But you know, that would be your district. If you have to do citywide, it takes more resources in that you got to do mailers to more people. The door knocking is just, you know, amplified five, six times over. Phone banking, you know, just everything you're doing is amplified. So, you know, I would need to go back to see, like, why folks were saying it's more expensive to have district elections. Yeah. I, I think reality, that was a little bit the, of a slate of hand thing there. Yeah. They were like, <laughs> it's not necessarily going to be cheaper. You can spend more money on one district. Yeah, you can always spend more money. Yeah. Like, just send someone a mailer every day, right. like we see in some of these elections. But just to be honest about like the sweat equity that goes into a district versus the city, like there's definitely a scale there that it makes it more manageable. And then you also feel more in community. You have a district that you're accountable to. You can know the neighborhood better versus a whole city, right? And so I think just the connection we're talking about, like the connection to your neighborhood and to the people that you can just concentrate more in a smaller area just makes more sense. 
one of the main opponent arguments was, well, if you do district elections, then you go from having, you know, whatever the number was, 11 people who represent you on the local board to just one that you can go to with your particular issue. Any thoughts or reflections on that? Just throwing it out there. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's the same thing about having a relationship with one person versus 11. Things get watered down. And also, Mm. I would say for those 11 people to have to know everything about their city, it's harder, right? Like, it's one thing for you to be in charge of, say, three or four neighborhoods, and you can really know, like, where the potholes are, where there's, like, a huge garbage dump, or if there's a homeless encampment growing, like, you can address it. But when you're talking about a whole city, it just... I think it waters it down. It makes it really hard to, you know, really focus and have the ability to prioritize. Like when you're elected, you get so many things already thrown at you. So then to think of the scale and have to deal with all of that at a citywide level versus your neighborhood, I can see, again, the benefit of having a smaller area to really focus on. There are some other tools aside from campaign finance reform and moving to district elections. Bay Rising is also constantly working to increase voter engagement and running programs to help people of color pursue elected office. We need to have some leadership development. We need to support people. We need to like help them think about their engagement with the community. It might not be running for office. It might be joining a commission. It might be participating in a budget process or something like that. But this idea of getting people more involved in their community, and if we really need to shift power, get them to be decision makers. So we have different community groups that have started leadership programs, There is a leadership program through Urban Habitat where they actually train people to join commissions and boards. Those are volunteer commitments, and they're not as big as, say, an elected position, but it does get you into the room and you start to advise different offices, right, on how to spend money, what programs are important. So those things are also super important to our democracy is having a lot of folks engaged in different ways. So not just city council or the mayor, but these different commissions, these different local bodies. And so by creating a pipeline, we can at least diversify the candidates first. If you want to see the research yourself and get into more detail about how district voting has changed things and what the Bay Area Equity Atlas and Bay Rising suggest might help make local elected officials more reflective of their constituents, you can go to bayareaequityatlas.org slash electeds2021. And of course, if anyone's interested in running for office or <laughs> getting to know any of these programs, please check out Bay Rising's website. Urban Habitat, I mentioned, has a leadership program. There are different programs for different parts of the Bay. So for Bay Rising, we work in about five different counties. So, you know, encourage folks to just look out for different programs and events that are happening. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic comes to you from KSFP LP at 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Our team includes producer and contributor Mel Baker and assistant producer Liana Wilcox. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org. Civic airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP. New episodes every Thursday. Thanks for listening.